Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour. And we've got an international flavour to the show today because there's lots happening over in the US and in the UK. Coming up on today's show, take a listen to this. That was some music uh, that we saw in a video from the British Party conference season this week where Pretty Patel was dancing with Nigel Farage. So Lucy Fisher of the Financial Times, she's the Whitehall editor and she was at the party conference this week. She's going to be here to talk to us and tell us all that happened there. Over in the US, crypto goes on trial as Sam Bankman-Fried faces his day of reckoning in court. We'll be hearing from one of the reporters who attended court this week. And staying in the US, there were unprecedented Presidented scenes in the House of Representatives this week as their speaker was unceremoniously sacked. We'll be joined by the US Guardian in Washington to find out exactly what's going to happen next. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on x at stockNT. Now, a search is underway for a new Speaker of the House of Representatives in the US after Republican Kevin McCarthy was ousted by a small but very powerful cohort of right-winged colleagues in his own party. Uh, So what now for the Republicans? What for the House of Representatives and for the Biden administration itself as uh, we examine whether another government shutdown might loom large. I'm joined now by Joan E. Grieve and she is a senior political reporter for The Guardian US based in Washington. Joan, you're very welcome on what I'm sure is a very busy week for you. Uh, Yes, it most certainly has been, but happy to be here. Well, look, before we get into what happens next and uh, who might replace Kevin McCarthy, I think it's worth just taking a moment to pause and recognise the enormity of what happened this week. Um, it's really historic de- departure. The the first time that they voted to remove uh, a speaker, no one in charge. Uh, this really is a very important role. It's the third, as I understand it, in the constitutional succession uh, of the United States. So uh, were people kind of stunned at this development? Yes, we really were. And I, I would say we were particularly stunned by the speed at which mm. it happened. Uh, you know, when we walked in on Saturday, we were really uh, braced for the possibility of a government shutdown happening at midnight because uh, House Republicans had failed to pass any sort of stopgap funding bill. And then to the surprise of everyone, including me, uh, Speaker McCarthy came out with a stopgap funding bill that uh, really did not meet uh, much or really any of the demands of his uh, hard right faction. And that bill pretty easily passed the House and the Senate. And President Biden was able to sign it with about 45 minutes to spare before a shutdown. And so after that happened, we were expecting uh, Matt Gates, who is the far right uh, congressman who sort of spearheaded this removal effort. We expected him to introduce a motion to remove McCarthy, but we were not expecting the swiftness with which he uh, did that. He introduced that motion on Monday night. By Tuesday morning, McCarthy said he wanted to hold a vote on it that afternoon. And our later he was out of a job. Yeah. 
Yeah, now you mentioned he brokered a deal, McCarthy brokered a deal at the weekend, which kind of maybe precipitated uh, Gates kind of taking this initiative. But we probably have to go a bit further back to understand the origins of this um, uh, this development, really, because it took quite an effort to get McCarthy into the position in the first place. And I'm thinking that he must have done an awful lot of bargains on the margins uh, to actually secure the position in the first place. That's absolutely right. Yeah, it took 15 rounds of voting for McCarthy to win the speakership. And in the end, there was still a a handful of um, holdouts like Gates who didn't even end up supporting McCarthy, but Mm. they ended up voting present uh, on the final vote, which that brought down the threshold needed for a majority. And that was what helped McCarthy uh, ultimately um, win the day. And so, uh, you know, so it really was he had to it was really a grueling experience for him in order to even get the speakership. And in order to get it, he had to make a lot of concessions to uh, folks like Matt Gates. One of those, which really came back to haunt him this week, was that he uh, reverted back to an old House norm, which said that it would only take a single member of the House to force a vote on vacating the chair. And we saw that, of course, play out this week, that Matt Gates used that to his advantage and uh, you know, launched this vote that was ultimately successful. But, you know, in the past nine months, I would say that McCarthy has really struggled to appease those uh, hard right lawmakers within his conference without alienating the less hard right members who are facing some pretty difficult reelection campaigns next year. And, you know, he's really tried to straddle that line between the various parts of his conference. And it just ultimately proved too much of too much for him to do. Yeah. And take us through like Tuesday and the voting, um, because when at the weekend he secured that deal that you mentioned earlier, he kind of put it up to the the rebels in his own Republican Party and said, like, kind of back me or sack me. And Matt mm-hmm. Gates took him at his word and used the opportunity that was secured in the deal uh, available to him and moved quite quickly. But um, so the Democrats then decided they weren't going to back uh, McCarthy and them, as I understand it, aligned with the rebels within the Republican Party is actually what uh, what was ultimately his downfall. He couldn't secure the support of his own party. That's right, yes. And Democrats ended up playing a uh, pretty crucial role here because after the uh, after the vote on Saturday to keep the government open, it seemed like some of the more centrist House Democrats probably would not vote to remove McCarthy. They might, simil- like similarly to what we saw in January, they might vote present on uh, that motion, which would, again, make it a little bit easier for McCarthy to stay in office. But I think what really sealed his fate was what actually happened on Sunday, which was on Sunday morning, uh, McCarthy did an interview with uh, CBS News about how uh, he had helped to avert a shutdown. And he really tried to blame Democrats for the fact that we walked, uh, that we did very nearly shut the government down. Mm. You know, he said that they were uh, pretty much intent on, you know, having a government shutdown. And in reality, uh, at the end of the day, when the House passed its stopgap funding bill, it was supported by almost every single member, a Democratic member of the House, while 90 House Republicans voted against it. Mm. And so I think that really angered a lot of Democrats that he was trying to pin this very you know, near uh, near disaster on Democratic members, when in fact they came to his assistance at the end of the day to ensure that that bill did get passed. And so I think after they saw that, they really were not inclined to help him keep his job. 
Yeah, because, I mean, from their point of view as well, you might think that they would have sat in that room making the decision, looking at, you know, who the potential replacements are and think, look, it's better the devil we know. But obviously, uh, they decided to go that way. And there, it's worth remembering there's still a huge amount of support for Kevin McCarthy in the Republican Party. It's just these eight people who, who I suppose, he didn't have the support of that caused this for him. But anyway, we are where we are, as they say. So what about the House now, Joan? Um, what is the situation? There's an interim person there. Who's that? Right. So right now, uh, Patrick McHenry, who is an ally of McCarthy and a Republican of North Carolina, he is serving as the temporary speaker of the House. And what's fascinating about his role is that we've never, as a country, we have never been in this situation before. As you already mentioned, this was the first time in history that the House successfully voted to remove the sitting speaker. And so it's kind of unclear, honestly, what McHenry's duties and um, uh, abilities are in this role because nobody has ever held it before. So, for example, a big question that people are asking is if we if the race for another House speaker stretches on, could McHenry theoretically introduce another stopgap funding bill? Because we are staring down the possibility of another government shutdown down next month. And the answer to that is really unclear. And it, but you'll hear a lot of different answers depending on who you ask that question to. And so he's there for the time being until we get a new full-time House Speaker, but that could take a while. And this may be a very stupid question, but who manages that process of, look, we got to find a new Speaker? Who does that? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it is. Uh, so basically, we'll see a, re- a repeat of what we saw in January, which is that we will uh, ev- the there will be the first vote is expected on uh, next Wednesday, mm-hmm. and in that vote, we will see another alphabetical roll call. So all four hundred and uh, usually the House has four hundred and thirty five members. Right now, there are two vacancies, so all forty four hundred and thirty three members of the House will be called on in alphabetical order to cast a vote for who they want the Speaker to be, and that voting process will continue until one. One uh, one member gets the gets the support of a majority of voting members, and as we already talked about in January, that took 15 rounds of voting for McCarthy to secure that. We already have two candidates on the Republican side: um, uh, the current House Majority Leader Steve Scalise and the House Judiciary Committee Chairman uh, Jim Jordan. They have already announced that they are going to run for the job, and so. Basically, in the interim, you have uh, Patrick McHenry acting as the um, acting speaker, unclear on what his like your duties are. And in terms of the actual um, administration of the vote, the House clerk will oversee that, as she did in uh, January. And uh, until until we get a new House speaker, essentially all other work just grinds to a halt. Wow. Um now, you mentioned two of the possible uh, candidates there, Scalise and Jordan. Do you want to just take us through a little brief overview of who they are and which of those that you think might be successful? Yes. So starting with Steve Scalise, he is the current House Majority Leader. Uh, he is uh, a Republican of Louisiana. He has served a, as a member of the House Republican leadership team for about a decade at this point. And uh, he had been talked about as a potential speaker when uh, the former Republican speaker, Paul Ryan, stepped down. Mm. But ult- ultimately, Kevin McCarthy stepped into that role. And 
McCarthy has had been sort of he, McCarthy had been dreaming of the speakership for many years. So the fact that you know that uh, Scalise was even like sort of uh, testing the waters of a potential speakership bid when he felt like it was finally his turn, it sort of soured their relationship a little bit. So I would say the biggest vulnerability for Scalise going into this is that he does have that. A lot of members remain uh, loyal to McCarthy, as we already talked about. It was only eight hard right Republicans who voted to oust McCarthy, but with such a narrow majority, that was enough. But because so many members remain loyal to McCarthy, the fact that uh, McCarthy and Scalise have a somewhat strained relationship, Mm. that could play a role here. Mm. And then on the other side, we have Jim Jordan, who is the chairman of the House Judiciary uh, Committee. He has really spearheaded a lot of the um, very uh, um, pointed investigations into the Biden administration and into uh, Hunter Biden, uh, Joe Biden's son in particular. And uh, that has won him a lot of um, praise uh, from uh, the uh, the hard right side of his party, including from uh, Donald Trump himself. Uh, he has said that, you know, uh, Trump has kind of said that he he likes uh, Jim Gordon, Jordan going on to Fox News to be an attack dog. And so uh, he does have uh, that that working in his favor. But I think what this will really come down to is the more more centrist members of the House Republican Conference who are many of whom are facing difficult reelection campaigns next year. Mm. So I think I think that'll be a fascinating dynamic to watch in this coming speakership race is that the last time around, it was really the hard right Republicans who were able to throw throw a lot of weight around and really uh, uh, extract a lot of concessions from McCarthy. But this time around, we might actually see centrists play more of that role because uh, because they feel like they have uh, more to lose basically mm. this time around. And I, that's uh, and those those negotiations. Uh, and, you know, we're already starting to see some of the demands that centrists have. It'll be really fascinating to see how those talks play out. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Joan, just go back to Kevin McCarthy for a second. Um, you mentioned some concessions there. Um, I read that when um, his vote, the vote for, for his continuing in the chair um, was live as an issue behind the scenes that the Democrats might have looked for some concessions and he wasn't in the mood to, to give anything or even have discussions around that. And I actually watched his uh, press conference uh, when he stood when he stood down eventually and, and announced that he wasn't going to seek re-election um, in the early hours of Wednesday morning, which is how sad I am. But um, <laughs> what did you make of him as a character? I mean, he clearly knows a lot of stuff. He clearly felt very passionate about that job. How do you think he performed? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I think that in in many ways, Kevin McCarthy feels like such a uh, perfect reflection of the party that he is a member of, because mm-hmm. about uh, 10 years ago, you know, McCarthy did have a lot of really solid relationships and friendships on the other side of the aisle. He was considered someone who could work in a really bipartisan fashion and, um, uh, and yeah, and really uh, do a lot of work that you know, would attract uh, support from both parties. And that has really... Uh, completely changed in the past uh, several years as you know Donald Trump has risen to the um, risen to become the leader of the Republican Party and I would say McCarthy is you know as someone who has wanted the job of speaker for so long I think that he felt that he absolutely he either needed to change or he needed to let go of his ambition and mm. at the end of the day he chose his ambition and so with that in mind he made a lot of concessions to the hard right we've seen him be very pointed in his attacks on Democrats and you, he really became a creature of his party, which his party is now the party of Trump. And, you know, 
we'll, uh, I guess we'll see in the coming months uh, how much he, uh, if, if he alludes at all to the fact that he regrets his decision. Mm. The fact that he did all this to be speaker for nine months is telling, I think. Um, but, you know, he is, um, at the end of the day, you know, the fact that he wasn't really willing to offer Democrats any concessions, I feel like really reflects how much his relationship with Democrats has deteriorated in the past few years. And then, of course, immediately after he lost his job, we saw um, uh, McHenry, uh, you know, working to remove Nancy Pelosi from her yeah, uh, office. office in the Capitol, yeah. right? And it just seemed like such a petty. So and then there were reports that, yeah, so. right. And the reports that McCarthy actually spe- uh, that encouraged him to do that. So it really does seem like it's like his previous, uh, I you know, his previous identity as a man who could work across the aisle is just has just evaporated in yeah. the Trump era. Absolutely. Look, a final question for you, if I can, Joan. I don't want to even discuss whether Donald Trump will do this, and and I know he's made comments on it, but does Kevin McCarthy have a relationship with Trump now? And if so, what is that? Do you see him reemerging somewhere else in the political <laughs> landscape? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, uh, the relationship between McCarthy and Trump is very interesting because um, after the uh, January 6th insurrection, uh, McCarthy initially came out and spoke very forcibly against Trump. Uh, you know, he really he spoke about the need for uh, in, an independent investigation of, you know, the insurrection and what led up to it. And, you know, really, uh, it seemed, really seemed to hold Trump responsible for the violence that we saw at the Capitol. But then within a matter of days, truly days, we saw that McCarthy then traveled down to Mar-a-Lago, Trump's resort in Florida, and was clearly sort of, you know, uh, sucking up to Trump again to, like, you know, to sort of get back into his good graces. And he he so quickly reversed his position. And that, I feel like, in many ways, was the final nail in the coffin for Democrats, in their opinion, of Kevin McCarthy. But what's interesting is that for Trump, Trump is very skilled at holding a grudge. And I don't mm-hmm. think that he's ever really forgotten the fact that McCarthy initially came out against him so harshly. So will Kevin McCarthy be like welcomed back into the folds of a pe- potential Trump, you know, 2024 uh, general election campaign? It's hard for me to envision that, but we'll see. You're absolutely right. Well, Joan, we certainly live in very interesting times and you are right in the middle of it. Joan, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. That was Joan E. Grieve, who is Senior Political Reporter for The Guardian US based in Washington. Thank you very much, Joan. Thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Crypto goes on trial in the US as Sam Bankman-Fried faces his day of reckoning. We'll have an update from the court case after this short break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, regular listeners might remember that we've covered the collapse of cyber trade firm FTX a couple of times now on the programme. We even covered the arrest of its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. Well, this week, the full trial of Bankman-Fried began in New York. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Joel Khalili from Wired to take us through what happened on the first few days of the trial. Joel, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Oh, yeah. How's it going? Now, before we get into what happened this week, might talk a little bit about uh, just a synopsis of FTX, what happened to that and Alameda as well. The company um, was huge, really. Um, So just talk to us about the size and and scale of the success, I suppose, of Sam Bankman-Fried in in the initial offering uh, that, that he put forward from those companies. Sure, absolutely. So, so Sam Bankman-Fried was the the founder of this crypto exchange, FTX. Uh, so, this was a, a venue for for buying and selling cryptocurrencies in, in the simplest terms. Um, at, at its height, FTX grew to become the, the second largest in the world. So, it, it was founded in uh, 2019, but grew very rapidly over the course of the next 
uh, roughly three years and earns along the way a kind of $32 billion valuation. Um, in, in, in that same time period, Bankman Freed himself became something of a public figure. He styled himself as the respectable face of crypto. He cozied up to regulators and politicians. He courted investors. He landed these kind of gushing profile pieces with large media outlets. Um, and all the while, he was kind of dressed in his trademark outfit, which is a, a T-shirt, cargo shorts, dad shoes, and this quite striking shock of, of curly brown hair that I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with. Yeah, he was kind of styling himself like the Adam Newmans of this world, the kind of celebrity CEOs like Elizabeth Holmes and that. And he was the new it guy. But it, it didn't remain like that forever. What went wrong? A kind of a series of events, actually. So starting in, in November, um, I won't go over... Uh, the kind of full extent of it for the sake of simplicity, but a, a series of events led customers uh, to rush to pull their money off, off FTX. Uh, and, and when this happened, it became clear that actually FTX didn't have the money to fund those withdrawals. Really, you know, in, in some ways, this is actually quite a straightforward case of, of fraud and embezzlement. So when, when customers deposited funds into FTX, the exchange was supposed to keep those funds on hand for withdrawal at any time. Uh, but instead, at least according to, to US law enforcement, Bankman-Fried had loaned billions of dollars of these funds to a sister company called Alameda Research, and that money was used to to bankroll to bankroll rather uh, risky trading activity, debt repayments, venture investments, personal loans, luxury purchases, and and kind of much more. Um, FTX then fell into bankruptcy in mid-November, and Bankman-Fried was arrested about a month later. Mm. And since that time, the, the the U.S. Department of Justice has filed 13 separate criminal charges against them, all relating in some fashion to this mm. central fraud, right, the, the misappropriation of customer funds. Well, yeah, Joel, you've done very well at explaining in very some terms what is actually very complicated. And if anyone wants to read more about it, it is all there by Joel on Wired.com. But yeah, you mentioned there the 13 charges and uh, he's now finally um, arrived at and and starting his his court appearance this week but since he was first arrested and before he got into his court case like the first principle of how you behave is do no harm what has his behavior been like in that period right so yeah i think possibly you know the most salient piece of time uh, for our purposes here is that month between uh, ftx collapsing in in november and then his arrest in in december so during that period he took uh, a series of kind of high-profile media interviews. He was posting kind of incessantly to to Twitter. He was blogging on a on a Substack that he started. Um, and you know, uh, I'm sure your listeners will will be aware. But the kind of first piece of advice given to any criminal defendant, anyone accused of, of wrongdoing, is is to remain silent for fear of incriminating yourself. And uh, I think that was the mistake that that Bank Refried made. Mm. Yeah, and he, there was quite quite a colourful character he is, and there was a lot of colourful behaviour during the company's demise, which which we won't go over. But listeners will be familiar. We've covered a lot of times on this on this program. Take us up to date now. So the trial started this week, and everyone was waiting to see what the defence uh, would put forward as the rationale behind his behaviour and why he shouldn't face what could be life imprisonment. Absolutely, yeah. So. Uh, the trial began two days ago. The first day was fairly uneventful, as predicted. The, the jury selection process took up almost the entirety of the day. But but yesterday, uh, we, we heard opening arguments, and that's where both sides have the chance to kind of set the scene for the jury and, and preview some of the evidence that they intend to present. 
Um, as you mentioned, kind of the, the greatest unknown coming into this trial was, was how Bankman-Fried would attempt to defend himself. Uh, the expectation loosely was that he would attempt to argue that he was perhaps negligent, but not deliberately fraudulent, right? Mm. That he made mistakes that, that led to the loss of people's money, but, but never intended deliberately to defraud anyone. Um, and as, as part of opening arguments yesterday, we were given the first real indication of, of how he would seek to kind of prop up that, um, uh, that defense. So essentially, Bankman-Fried's attorney characterized the fall of FTX more as a story of a failed business, you know, a startup that got in over its head and, and made bad decisions, um, but certainly not a fraudulent one. That was the claim. So he didn't dispute that Bankman-Fried had knowingly loaned customer funds to Alameda, the sister company, mm. um, but he did claim that 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 had been done in in the belief that that was totally you know uh, totally appropriate under the FTX terms of service. Mm. Um, the other point I think of note was that the defense also took some steps to deflect blame away from Bankman-Fried and kind of undermine the credibility of some key insider witnesses. They kind of emphasized the the scale to which FTX had grown uh, in, in its three years in existence, which they said kind of limited. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's oversight, uh, and also can pointed to the vested interests of the insiders that, that will be testifying against Bankman-Fried, given that their plea deals with the government are kind of contingent on them, uh, on, on them testifying against him. Yeah, I mean, they kind of uh, depicted him um, as, you know, this kind of altruistic mathematical genius who kind of stumbled upon this success and wasn't deliberately doing anything wrong. Uh, it just kind of was a happy accident that he seemed to get this successful. And then the demise and the loss of all the investors' money, ergo, is not his fault either. But how has that defence gone down initially? So it, it's tough to tell at this at this stage, um, you know, how uh, how that defence will be uh, mm. received by the jury. Um, it, we won't know until a little later on. I think we'll, we'll get it. We'll get more of a sense, you know, as the prosecution lays out its argument, as witnesses are, are brought to the stand, mm. as to how well the prosecution's case is going. So the, the way that a, a trial like this goes from a kind of logistical standpoint is that the prosecution will. Uh, both sides will make their opening statements and then the prosecution will, over over maybe a number of weeks, uh, bring their uh, various witnesses to the stand for cross-examination. And then only at the end will the defense get to uh, set out it, its full um, uh, its full defense. So we won't know at this stage kind of how well it's going down. Um, but it, in some ways, that was his only choice, right? Like there was there was no way that he could stand up there and claim that the money hadn't been loaned to Alameda, that the money hadn't gone missing. Um, and so the kind of, I didn't mean it, that wasn't my intention defence was was almost his only choice. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'm speaking to Joel Khalili from Wired and we're talking about the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. The prosecution, let's go back to that for a bit. I should have asked you really about the charges that he's facing and the magnitude of what could happen to him. I reference he could end up in prison for life. Is that an exaggeration or is that seriously what is facing him? So, uh, from a, from a purely technical perspective, the the sum of the kind of maximum sentences of the of the seven charges that he's being tried on uh, at court uh, this month, they do carry a, a maximum of uh, 110, 115 years in prison. Now, the the reality, though, I think, and this is based on conversations I've had with with various white collar lawyers, the the reality is that the likely sentence, if he's found guilty at the end of this trial. Uh, would would be far far shorter. You know, we're still talking in the magnitude of decades, mm. uh, but, but not you know, hundred plus years. It's more like twenty thirty, as far as I understand. Mm. And what witnesses can we expect to see over the coming weeks? 
Sure. So I think I think the, the prosecution's witnesses can be broken down into into three groups, really. So I think we're likely to hear uh, from a number of, of FTX customers, uh, people who lost money on, on the exchange uh, when it went bankrupt. And the purpose there will be to underline for the jury, for the jury, the kind of tangible, real-world impact uh, uh, that the collapse of FTX caused. You know, you, you can see uh, billions of dollars uh, is kind of an abstract figure, but you know, when you put someone mm. on the stand to testify to, to the real-world damage, the real-world consequences of uh, the alleged fraud, it can be fairly compelling. And the second two groups uh, would also be FTX investors, so they will testify uh, to the fact that, that Bankman-Fried. Uh, misled them about the nature of the relationship between FTX and Alameda, and the way that it handled customer funds when it came time to to raise venture capital, uh, of which you know FTX raised uh, millions of dollars worth. Uh, and then the final group is is FTX insiders. So um, Bankman-Fried didn't operate alone, uh, as much as kind of that's been the way that it's been depicted in in media. You know, he had a kind of loyal. Uh, or perhaps not so low a group of, 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 of lieutenants. So in particular, the, the lead witness is likely to be a lady called Caroline Ellison. So she was CEO of Alameda Research, the sister company, uh, and was also kind of on and off girlfriend of Bankman-Fried. So he, uh, she, along with a, a, another couple of his kind of inner circle of, of lieutenants, have taken plea deals. They've pled guilty to fraud-related charges and mm. are expected to testify against Bankman-Fried at, at trial. Mm. Yeah, I mean, she's going to be very interesting. Um, obviously, if she hadn't uh, arranged this plea deal for herself, she herself could be in quite a bit of trouble. So I'm sure there will be a lot of eyes on her. Just beyond the trial itself, Joel, um, what significance is this in a wider context when we're looking at the, I suppose, the technical landscape of cryptocurrency? Um, and this is a trading company, obviously, but it, is it something that could impact the wider um, industry, let's let's just call it an industry for, for what it is. Sure, sure. So I, I wouldn't like to guess at, at the impact on crypto markets, mm. the, the price of the currency. Um, but if we're talking about you know the trajectory of the crypto industry, um, the, the businesses that operate in the space, the, the, the everyday users of crypto, you know, there aren't many of them, but they do exist. Um, I'm actually not sure a, a great deal is at stake if we're looking specifically at uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's trial. Um, you could make a case that the trial is important because it, it creates an opportunity for catharsis, you know, for the, for those who who were caught up, uh, or because it kind of draws a, a symbolic line under this latest chapter in in the crypto drama. Mm. Uh, but my view is that it's probably most significant as a as a piece of spectacle, right? You know, people are kind of highly invested in in the human drama of it all. There's a fascination with his character. Mm. Uh, but the real fallout from the FTX collapse, you know, that's been playing out. We've been chronicling that over the last 11 months, um, you know, since, since last November when it became clear that something was was really severely wrong. You know, the, the, the impact on the crypto industry has kind of already been priced in. Um, so, so really, I think in, in terms of the trial, the, the impact on the in- industry will be fairly limited. Yeah, the, the, the wider implications could possibly be not about the crypto industry, but actually about that CEO cult culture, if you like, where people, you know, gravitate towards an individual. I mentioned Adam uh, Newman. There's the Elizabeth Holmes one. And you were talking about the different types of witnesses that we'll see over the coming weeks. And the first pillar you mentioned are like ordinary people who invested. So um, I think perhaps it may you know, 
cause people to kind of question that investment in a figure rather than, uh, you know, looking at the details and just buying into a person, perhaps? Yes, I, I think that's probably a fair assessment. You know, people in, in crypto talk uh, talk about this phenomenon of, of hero worship. Mm. There's a tendency to, to latch onto these figures who are able to kind of parlay uh, their way to, to you know, immense wealth. There's this kind of fetishization of, of innovation of uh, and of wealth. I think, you know, that's a, a phenomenon that has contributed in, in part to uh, the rise and ultimately the, the fall of, of Bankman-Fried. So, it, you know, wh- whether lessons have truly been learned, I suppose, is an open question. Mm. It's possible that they've been learned in the short term, but, you know, I, it wouldn't surprise me if in a, in a year or two, perhaps we, we we see the cycle repeat itself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And destined to make the same mistakes all over again. Joel, before I let you go, is it getting much media attention over in the US? Um, is it on TV over there? Are you going to be following it every day? And how long do you think it's going to last? So, I mean, there, there is an immense amount of attention on this trial. You know, every publication under the sun, uh, um, especially kind of business finance publications, technology publications have, have got uh, reporters in the court, uh, including Wired. Um, so, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of attention on this trial throughout. Uh, in terms of duration, there have been six weeks allocated for this trial. Um, but my understanding, though, is that in, in, in often... Um, in these cases, the, the trial is often doesn't quite run as, as long as uh, the allotted period. So really, we may be looking at four or five weeks instead. OK, well, Joel, look, we're very fortunate to have you here at Wired.com covering this for the next couple of weeks anyway. And uh, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. That was Joel Khalili from Wired.com. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Now, as queues form at the Tory party conference this week to see Liz Truss and Nigel Farage, we'll be looking at the state of the Conservative Party with Financial Times Whitehall editor Lucy Fisher after the break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, this week saw the UK Conservative Party hold its annual conference in Manchester. You may remember when we spoke about the party back in July, the mood was foreboding for Rishi Sunak, for sure. He was heading into the summer. Um, But the party was way behind in the polls then and he was looking like a little bit of a lame duck. But they're still behind in the polls. But this week he sort of came out fighting, promising some kind of radical policy shift in his conference. Um, Will it work? Has it been enough? Well, Lucy Fisher was at the conference and she's from the Financial Times. She's the Whitehall editor and she joins me now to discuss. Lucy, you're very welcome back to News Talk. Hello, good to be with you. Now, the the speech, it's a big set piece always. But before we get into to what he said and what he did, maybe we talk about the conference in a wider sense. You know, we have party conferences here in Ireland. They're called Ardeshina, but they seem to be a very paltry affair compared to the jamborees that go on over in the UK. So maybe talk to us a little bit about the mood music going into this and what the conference atmosphere was like ahead of his speech. Well, look, uh, uh, over the summer, there has been growing disquiet from Tory MPs uh, who are have been increasingly concerned about uh, the Tory party lagging Labour by typically 15 to 20 points in the polls, suggesting that there could be a wipeout at the next election for the party if uh, Rishi Sunak wasn't able to uh, turn uh, the ship around. So there's been a lot of pressure growing on him. Um, uh, Ten days before the conference kicked off, he made this big intervention on net zero scaling back um, some of his green policies there, saying he wanted to prioritise the cost of living pressures people were facing. And really,
really there there was a sense that the conference was the last um, available and plausible moment that the prime minister had to try and set out a new stall, try and reframe himself in order to try and make a significant headway in the polls heading into the, the general election next year. So that's the context mm. as the party faithful gathered uh, in Manchester from Sunday to Wednesday. Yeah, you mentioned that speech two weeks ago. And of course, the other thing that that kicked off was a big discussion about what was going to happen to this big rail infrastructural project HS2 and look it's always advisable if you're ripping off a plaster that you do it quickly but this one seemed to drag on for ages. Well, it certainly did. And frankly, uh, it completely overshadowed the conference. Um, Rishi Sunak didn't uh, make clear his decision until the last day, the Wednesday of the conference. And yet it was the talk of the town um, throughout the rest of uh, the meeting. I think also there was this sense that, you know, Downing Street, understandably perhaps, wanted to focus a spotlight on Sunak by holding back the bulk of um, meaty announcements to the Wednesday. It wasn't just um, cancelling the northern leg of HS2 and announcing new uh, money for other rail and road initiatives. Uh, he also brought forward um, this uh, smoking ban for future generations and uh, unveiled plans to shake up the school lever qualification uh, in Great Britain. Um, but because Downing Street wanted to save the majority of the big substantive announcements, the rest of the official agenda um, felt very thin. Other cabinet ministers didn't have much to say when they got up behind the podium. And therefore, again, there was this sense that the energy and momentum was all on the right of the party um, who were, you know, having, uh, holding coordinated rallies. You know, Liz Truss was there, Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, some of the 2019 intake who are, uh, you know, really quite significantly more to the right of the party mm. um, than Downing Street. They were really, um, you know, uh, making the headlines uh, and dominating the conference until uh, Sunak's speech. Yeah, and those names, uh, Nigel Farage attending as a journalist, um, but Liz Truss back with her own effort to sort of reinvent herself within the, the party. But it did lend itself to a discussion about has the the Conservative Party kind of pivoted more to the right now. And let's just go back to that um, rail infrastructure project, if we can, for a second, HS2, because whilst on the one hand it is about rail and infrastructure and building, it's also, or it was also, about an awful lot more. It was symbolic, I think, of the Tory party reaching out to that red wall again. So do you see that this might be an effort by Sunak to kind of get back to that core party base? He did he did inherit a very broad-based party. So do you see that, you know, binning that connection and that outreach to, to the red wall as maybe something that he's tactically doing to reach out to Conservatives a bit more? Well, look, I think there's certainly something in that. And I think it plays into a, a wider narrative, which is him... Um, saying, you know, he is the man for towns rather than cities. He framed the high-speed rail um, pro program as being about connecting major cities while pointing out, you know, actually the majority of people in, uh, you know, England live in towns and he wants to sort of spread the money a bit further afield with, you know, whether it's filling in potholes or local um, bus links, improving, uh, you know, smaller um, destinations, uh, railway stations. And I think the wider narrative there is a slightly sort of populist mm. anti-elites, you know, anti, uh, you know, metropolitans, wealthier people who live in city centres, um, and instead pitching himself on being on the side of sort of more ordinary people 
people from sort of um, you know smaller smaller towns as well. So it fits in with this sort of backlash um, against sort of glossier wealthy types as he tries to present himself as being more in touch, particularly with those households. I think that are feeling uh, really the pressure from the cost of living. Yeah, and I suppose um, the lead into his own speech, then his wife uh, taking the opportunity to talk about the man and sort of get some kind of uh, the personal size of his life or their life together across. But when you look at the speech, his big offering was the country needs change and we're the change. So, or I'm the change. So I I just felt looking at that speech, either he is delusional to think that people will believe that or he thinks that they can reposition themselves and that the electorate are kind of stupid because they've been in power for quite a long time themselves. Well, look, I think there is a, a lot of scepticism, even amongst those in his own parties, about this idea of him trying to present himself as the changed candidate. You know, people who were loyal to and played a part in the administrations of David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, also quite unhappy about him, you know, trashing mm. the reputations of those governments. They think it's a really, really risky approach and one that won't wash with the public. Uh, you know, it did feel a bit overkill in some ways during the speech. You know, he used the word change 30 times. Um, it's all very well, you know, you know, emphasising that in rhetoric. I think there's also a question mark about whether the, the policy substance he's putting forth really, um, you know, uh, um, really underscores that. You know, yes, these are sort of sensible measures, perhaps looking to kind of reform um, A-levels, you know, banning smoking when, you know, it, it uh, is responsible for 64,000 deaths in the UK a year. Look, th- those are good measures. Um, but do those and the transport um, uh, investment that he's sort of redistributed, do they really make a substantiated programme of huge change mm. for the entire country? People are pretty sceptical about it. Yeah, like there were hardly any kind of moonshot moments in his speech and certainly those policies, while really laudable, um, they're not something really that speaks to the issues uh, of every single household who's dealing with a severe cost of living crisis at the moment, are they? No, and I also think if you you step back even further and think about some of the the problems facing the UK, whether it's housing or social care, and indeed around the economy, you know, low growth, uh, dismal productivity, uh, poor investment, you know, these were not big measures to kind of get the economy moving or to give them any extra headroom to spend money on um, public services or or significant reform. Mm. So, as I say, I think people are looking at what he said uh, askance. His allies in Downing Street, um, you know, maintain that this is just the start. We can expect more announcements uh, in coming months. But, um, you know, we are, you know, at a time when the public finances are tight and therefore there isn't a lot of money um, to spread around with with major reform or extra cash for Mm -hmm. for many parts of the public sector. So it doesn't feel like he has a massive amount of room for manoeuvre. Indeed. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'm speaking to Lucy Fisher, who's Whitehall editor at the Financial Times. Lucy, just to talk about some of the people on the margins of the meeting who got quite a bit of attention, as you rightly pointed out earlier. So we had the unfortunate uh, display of uh, Priti Patel and Nigel Farage dancing. And then we had quite a curious speech uh, leading into Rishi Sunak, Penny Morden. And um, Farage on the margins, Liz Trust. do you think that they are gaining traction and that there's a de facto leadership contest of, of some description underway on the margins of all this already? 
Well, I think there is, because there is this sort of sense of pessimism among many quarters of the party. And indeed, you know, I, I can't remember uh, a, a, a Tory party conference I've ever attended with so few MPs. Um, and frankly, you know, it didn't seem that thronging with activists or even lobbyists either, you know, just judging it from previous years. Um, so there is this sense among some pessimists in the party that, you know, they feel power is slipping away. Mm. And that is, of course, you know, turning minds to the subject of succession. Um, you know, uh, that was clearly what was at the forefront of uh, Suella Bravman, the Home Secretary's mind, Kemi Badenoch, uh, the Business Secretary, and Penny Mordaunt, the Commons Leader, um, you know, as far as many MPs watching it um, thought, you know, eye-catching sort of presentations, theatrical with Suella Braverman, her sort of lurch to the right and the hardening of her language around migration mm. um, is all very uh, notable. Um, and the, the irony is that um, the more people sort of act as though losing the election is a foregone conclusion, the, the more that actually makes that outcome a reality. Mm. Was there anything else in this speech that stood out for you? Yeah, look, I thought it was interesting um, that, you know, for, for the first time, uh, he sort of drew attention to his his background and heritage. Mm. And I thought it was a, a nice line, actually, uh, from him when he said, you know, he was proud to be the first British Asian prime minister, and even prouder that it hadn't been a, a big deal. I think he was, there had been a sense that when he um, took office, I think he and those around him, his aides and advisors, thought that other people would point out what a historic moment it was. Mm. Um, um, and actually, there wasn't that 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 much sort of d- discussion of it. It was it was noted on on the margins at the time. You know, obviously, he did take over at a, at a period of particular kind of turmoil in the economy and so forth. So I think they were sort of keen to to draw attention to it and just to make clear that you know he is proud uh, of his background and and you know what a symbolic moment it is for uh, you know British Asians. But equally, that you know he's also happy that you know we do live in a country um, where you know someone. Uh, who is non-white can uh, take take the helm in number ten. So uh, yeah, I thought that was uh, that was a nice touch. Yeah, no, and it was lovely to hear him talking about his parents and his grandfather and bringing him into the chamber. That was very sweet. Before I let you go, I just want to ask you a question about that. Um, HS2 project again because one of the things that has been said is that it's actually a demonstration now that the UK can't deliver these large infrastructural mm-hmm. projects you know and that that's quite an indictment given the the historical reputation I suppose of, of the UK. He's he's pointed out that there's 36 billion euro or in savings um, because of this and it can be spent elsewhere but of course he hasn't spent any of it yet so you can't really save any money um, but does it not contradict his overall theme for the conference that everything should be about long term planning not about popularity? Well look you know he, his thought was that the costs of HS2 have just spiralled due to mismanagement due to inflation uh, and that you know he, changing patterns to work travel after the pandemic with more people working remotely more of the time um uh, it's interesting how the redistribution of that 36 billion pounds has gone down um it's actually been pretty popular with many mps mm. who are going to get you know some small pot of cash or some kind of you know uh, new project in their own patch which they hope will go down with voters but as you say you know some of the more um, economically lit- literate and circumspect mps also point out the damage this can do to investor confidence and the reaction from business um 
you know, ha has been pretty pretty furious, and I think that has been striking. So I think there could be a long-term repercussion from this, um, mm. certainly, that hasn't necessarily been picked up by MPs who are hoping for sort of short-term electoral gains from mm. this move. Lucy, you're well into party conference season now. Before I let you go, as a journalist attending this, what's it like? Gosh, well, it, it is a marathon. You know, I'm just bracing ahead of um, travelling to uh, Liverpool for the Labour conference uh, on uh, Sunday. Um, they are late nights. They are boozy. There's lots of gossip exchanged in the bars and the parties at night. That is a really kind of key element of it. And it's just, it, it is a useful um, sort of time each year just to take the temperature of the parties as I say to get a sense of you know who turns up whether it's lobbyists MPs activists what their mood is how united or fractured a, a party looks and to get a sense of the sort of priorities that the leadership uh, of any given party are hoping to foreground mm. so um, yeah I'm interested to see what uh, Keir Starmer is going to say when uh, when the party faithful uh, from Labour gather in Liverpool Well good luck in Liverpool next week Lucy I'm sure it won't be dull that was Lucy Fisher Whitehall editor of the Financial Times. Thank you very much for joining us again today. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks, as always, to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with thanks to Simon Keane and Stephen Daunt on research with Hugo De Silva on sound. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Sean Defoe with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.